Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen, how are you? I'm good. Good. So today we're going to talk about some abstracts from the 15th International Society for Research in Human Milk and Lactation Conference, which many of us call ISHMERL. And I think that conference is every two years. This conference, uh, from which these abstracts come from, was held at the end of September in 2012 in Italy. It was a pretty international conference. I read that more than half of the attendees were from other countries outside the U.S., which makes this conference very different from the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine Conference. And it tends to be more research-based rather than sort of practice review, clinical review, which our uh, conference tends to be. So why don't you start with um, an abstract that you reviewed? Okay, so um, the very first abstract in the in the magazine was Manipulation of Intestinal Microbiome in the Newborn Infant by Joseph New at the University of Florida. And I chose this abstract for two reasons. First, um, a lot has been made recently of the influence of breastfeeding on gut flora and its impact on necrotizing enterocolitis. I've seen recent studies on everything from breastfeeding um, influencing biofilms in the gut to the effect of formula even in small amounts, like one or two ounces, on the development of food allergies. So I was interested in this short summary of the literature relating to factors that influence intestinal flora and its relation to infants' health. And also, because I'm hailing from the University of Florida, it gives me the opportunity to say, Go Gators! <laughs> <laughs> right. But seriously, um, this abstract touches on five areas related to um, the intestinal microbiome, and that's sort of all of the microbial um, soup that's in the gut and um, uh, the genes of those microorganisms. And it has a nice list of references included. So first, cesarean section versus vaginal delivery. During birth and shortly thereafter, bacteria from the baby's environment and mother colonize the infant's gut. The method of delivery greatly influences the bacteria which are present in this early intestinal flora. After vaginal delivery, contact with the mother leads to colonization with a predominance of lactobacillus and other bifidobacterium. But babies born by cesarean section have less diverse flora, which more similarly resembles that found on the skin surface it is often dominated by staphylococcus. This can have long-term effects on the intestinal flora, even for years. And new evidence suggests that this microbiota has an important role in the development of the immune system. 
Available epidemiological data show that asthma, eczema, type 1 diabetes, and food allergies appear more often in infants after cesarean delivery than after vaginal delivery. That's really amazing. The next area that he touched on was amniotic fluid colonization and the fetal intestinal microbial environment. So Dr. New notes that although there exists a commonly held belief that the fetal intestinal tract is sterile, recent studies um, using culture and non-culture-based techniques suggest that many preterm infants were exposed to microbes in the amniotic fluid, which they swallow before they're born. And this has led to speculation that this microbial exposure may impact fetal intestinal physiology and inflammation. And inflammation is a big factor when it comes to necrotizing enterocolitis. And that's the next area he touched on, um, which is often called NEC, which is much easier to say. Um, So he touched on a study where microbial analysis from um, fecal samples from infants with NEC and control showed that patients who had NEC had less diversity of their intestinal flora and it had more antibiotic exposure leading up to their diagnosis, which it makes sense that that contributes to them having less diversity. Yeah, that's interesting. So it really, so he's not really talking about the how breastfeeding impacts that. Not in that part of this, although it's interesting because it sort of does relate to other studies which have been done subsequently which talk about how breastfeeding affects the flora. So it wasn't really touching on that here, but there have been studies recently that show that babies who are breastfed have more diverse gut flora. Right, and they have more bifidus and less clostridia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the last two parts is a brief part on antibiotics, which sort of is very similar to the, the ones that I've mentioned so far, um, that lots and lots of preterm infants and mothers are given antibiotics, and this has been um, suggested to have an increased um, occurrence of neck. And the last part, which I was not aware of, is about probiotics. And so um, the World Health Organization defines a probiotic as a live microorganism, which when administered an adequate amount, confers a health benefit on the host. And where we are here in Southern California, my patients ask me all the time about probiotics for their kids. Um, You know, should they eat yogurt when they're on antibiotics and all sorts of things like that. And the interesting thing was that there has been a big multi-center study that showed probiotics can have a preventative effect against neck, and um, that there was a, a higher incidence of sepsis in really preterm babies, especially those less than 750 grams. And so there's a question about whether or not it's safe for, for micropremies. But all of these different areas essentially showed that altering the gut flora of infants has an effect on their health, and I think that's a good background when we're going forward and talking about how what we feed infants has an effect on their gut flora. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Well, and the interesting thing about um, probiotics is that there are lots of 
uh, probiotic-type bacteria that are in breast milk that never seem to culture out when we do cultures. But if you, like in the microbiome studies done on breast milk, using other methods like PCR, they can identify mm-hmm. these probiotics. So that may be one of the mechanisms as to why babies who are breastfed have less neck. But that's mm-hmm. super interesting. It would be really interesting to see if the neonatologists eventually start to give probi- more probiotics to to babies in the NICU. Yeah, I'd be happy if I could just get more breast milk to the babies in our NICU. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'll um, talk about an abstract that was done by Dr. Thomas Hale, who's a pharmacologist, very well known. He's from the Department of Pediatrics at Texas Tech University. And his abstract, I should, oh, I should backtrack and just mention these abstracts are listed in the December issue of the Breastfeeding Medicine Journal from the, that is um, sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. So anyway, he discusses in his abstract the use of antidepressants in pregnant and nursing women. And it's not a study. It's basically a literature review. He first reviews that the typical antidepressants that we use, which are in the category of the SSRIs, which are the serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, they're not felt to be teratogenic, meaning that they don't cause birth defects. So that's that's sort of universally accepted. The biggest issue with taking SSRIs during pregnancy is the discontinuation syndrome that many babies have after they're born. And this this discontinuation syndrome can take on a variety of symptoms, such as the babies appearing jittery, irritable. Some babies have the opposite where they're low tone and don't feed well. And then there are the babies who have shortness of breath, which oftentimes looks like something called transient tachypnea of the newborn, where they just have a rapid respiratory rate for a number of hours, maybe 12 to 24 hours. But some babies do have um, shortness of breath that's more severe due to pulmonary hypertension, where they need oxygen and NICU stays for sometimes several days to a couple weeks. But so far, studies seem to show that babies with the syndrome get better and there are no long-term consequences for any of these discontinuation symptoms that can happen when babies are exposed to SSRIs. No one knows for sure how often it happens, but some studies indicate that up to 30% of babies exposed to SSRIs might experience some of these withdrawal symptoms. And it seems that babies who are exposed to shorter-acting SSRIs, um, such as paroxetine and sertraline, have the highest risks. And it's probably because it leaves their system so much faster that they don't have a gradual decline in the level of the medication in their system, but it's more rapid. And in particular, he mentions that when paroxetine, which is Paxil, is mixed with clonazepam, also known as clonopin, that seems to make things worse for babies because the clonazepam changes the serum level in moms of the paroxetine. So then he talks about breastfeeding, and he states that SSRIs are studied more in breastfeeding than any other class of medications during lactation, which is not surprising because postpartum depression is so common, and I think they're probably the most common medications in in any event, for people in at least the United States. Yeah, it's a really commonly used medicine. Yeah. Um, interestingly, something I wasn't aware of, he said that levels of SSRIs decline in the breast milk over time, especially after the first month, which I wonder if that has to do with 
just the tight junctions between the lactocytes gradually closing. So you have less leakage of serum material going into the breast milk, but I don't know. Anyway, he said that fluoxetine is the less preferred antidepressant, which is Prozac, because milk levels are pretty high and they end up being about 14.6% of the maternal dose. But he states that even if women are on fluoxetine, if the babies are doing fine, just leave mom on it because most babies are fine on it anyway. In terms of other medications, sertraline and paroxetine, which is Paxil, is very low in breast milk. And the insulin absorb the I'm sorry, the intestinal absorption by the infant is even lower of these medications. The most popular medication seems to be sertraline, which is Zoloft, for mom's postpartum for depression. And sertraline has very low to undetectable levels in the infant serum. And I would say in my community, sertraline Zoloft is the is the first one, first one that we use. And sertraline just has a great effect on anxiety. So it's usually the first one that I use and it seems that most women respond quite well to it. Yeah, I've had the same experience. With sertraline, yeah. At this point, Dr. Hill reports that it's current practice to keep women on their antidepressants through pregnancy into lactation and not to drop them down or stop them during pregnancy or lactation for fear of effects of the infant because they generally have been pretty safe and it's better that moms continue to do well and not have exacerbation of their symptoms postpartum. He also mentions lastly that long-term neurobehavioral outcomes in the infants exposed to antidepressants look pretty good and there are no long-term complications that have been found in infants who um, were exposed to SSRIs, um, especially as they're followed over time. So I thought that was encouraging. It is. And, you know, it's sort of, uh, to me, the flip side of that is that there are studies that show um, neuro, bad neurodevelopmental effects on children when they live um, with mothers who have depression. Yeah. And so sometimes people are very concerned about the effects of these drugs and treating moms, but they forget about the, you know, the effects of being in an environment where the mom's not treated. So I totally I, uh, agree. I liken that to thinking about the, you know, concerns of the drug in the milk versus, you know, not considering the the downside of formula. Right. Absolutely. Oh yeah, I totally agree. So okay, so your turn. Okay, so. Um, the second abstract that I chose was titled Current Concepts in Vitamin D Requirements for Mother and Her Breastfeeding Infant by Carol Wagner at the University of South Carolina in Charleston. And I chose this study because vitamin D is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics for all breastfeeding infants and formula-fed babies receiving less than one liter of formula per day, which is a lot, not all of exclusively formula-fed babies get that much. And they recommend that we um, give babies 400 international units per day of vitamin D. In my practice, mothers frequently ask me whether it would be possible for them to take vitamin D to increase the amount in the milk rather than giving vitamins to their baby directly. And in places like Southern California, where I am, I sometimes hear my colleagues debating whether or not our patients need supplementation because of the amount of sunlight they get. So in this abstract, Dr. Wagner 
noted that the association between reduced exposure to sunlight and the risk of developing childhood rickets was first discovered almost four centuries ago. And then in the 1980s, it was found that breastfed infants were at high risk of vitamin D deficiency um, compared to those who were formula fed. Breast milk in um, one of the big studies around that time was found to contain an average of um, 70 international units of vitamin D per liter. And this is sort of in reference to the idea that you should be getting about 400 per day, which is how much is in a liter of standard formula. However, later um, they realized this study had a selection bias for mothers from higher latitudes with limited sunlight exposure. And really there is a direct association between breast milk vitamin D content and maternal vitamin D status. Moms who are replete in vitamin D have enhanced transfer in their milk and provide ample vitamin D for their infants. So just in the last few years, um, maternal supplementation with higher doses of vitamin D up to 6,400 international units per day was tested for safety and effectiveness. This um, abstract is from a six-year study. Um, it's a multi-center study where the authors tested the hypothesis that 6,400 international units given to the mom would make her replete so she could provide at least 400 international units per day to her infant who would then also be replete. They did a um, prospective randomized study, so they split the moms into three groups and gave the moms either 400, 2400, or 6400 units of vitamin D per day. And the infants of the moms in the low dose group were also given 400 units per day. And the other um, two groups, the infants received placebo. So the middle group where the moms were receiving 2,400 international units was stopped after three years. So halfway through the study, they stopped the middle group because they found there were too many infants with deficiency at four months of age compared to the other two groups. And when they finished the study, they found that the, the moms who were given the high-dose high vitamin D um, had much better levels of vitamin D sufficiency in the mothers compared with the low-dose group, which isn't surprising. But also they found that infants receiving placebo and milk from moms in the high-dose group had the same um, serum levels of vitamin D as the babies who were supplemented directly. Interesting. Yeah. So they found that when lactating women achieved levels of 25-hydroxy-D, which is the the one that is supplemented and that we measure, and they achieve at least 60 nanograms per milliliter or greater in their blood, there was sufficient transfer of vitamin D into the milk so that the infant would be replete. Interesting. And it's really interesting. And the authors conclude that the concept of human milk being deficient in vitamin D is obsolete based on these data and that strategies that improve maternal vitamin D status using either sunlight or vitamin D supplementation to attain sufficiency will benefit the mom and the breastfeeding infant. So also I talked to an endocrinologist about this, and she said to me that the moms vary a great deal in the amount of um, vitamin D they have and that it's worthwhile to test the moms because 
um, that'll help guide us as to whether or not they're really sufficient. And it can vary also depending on the mom's weight status because vitamin D can be sequestered in fat. And so if the mom's very overweight, even giving her large doses might um, not be sufficient to get her serum and thus milk levels up, which was also very interesting. Yeah, that's what I find clinically because I check a lot of my patients as a family doctor, their vitamin D status, and it is so much directly related to weight. Um, and, and then I have some women who have gut issues, whether or not they have mild um, intestinal inflammation, I don't know. Not everyone has celiac sprue, but some women require like 10,000 units to get their levels even up past 30. So yeah, but it that's is so- not an unreasonable amount to give people. I think you know some of us would look at the regular vitamin bottle and say 400 and go, wow, 10,000, that might be too much. Right. But it is safe to give those high levels, Yeah. especially if you're following the mom's status. Except that some people have neurologic side effects of uh, vitamin D. It makes them irritable. Um, they have trouble sleeping. Um, I've definitely seen that over the years in people who just say they can't tolerate it. And, yeah, it because it, it obviously that. has neurologic effects. I mean, it helps people with, you know, sort of the seasonal affective disorder. So you know it has some effect on the brain, plus it's, you know, fat-soluble. Yeah. We have a bunch of fat and in our heads. So we were talking about, you were talking about the, you know, gut um, absorption. And it, it is fat-soluble. So part of it also can have to do with their diet. Yeah, yeah, true, definitely. So yeah, that's so interesting. But I would agree that I would have I would be nervous about just blanketly telling women take sixty four hundred and your baby will be fine because I think it is gonna depend on how they respond to that dose. And then, you yeah. know, making sure that they are taking it every day and that's although that's an issue for babies too, that some parents are not giving the babies vitamin D every day and I think part of it is because a lot of the vitamin D suspensions are in one ML of all kinds of it's in a milieu of sugar and artificial flavor and stuff like that that people yeah, spit out. Yeah, I wasn't out. the best about giving my kids their vitamin D, but I lived in Florida and Southern California, so I always felt, well, I'll take her outside. Yeah. <laughs> well, I worry about how we give this one ml of icky stuff to babies, and the babies, when they start with solids, are like pretty suspicious of anything that is coming at them, you know? Yeah. Whereas, I So I usually choose a vitamin D. There are a number of vitamin D supplements now that are just drops so it's just like mm-hmm. one drop that's in either like a corn oil or some other type of oil that's tasteless it's not a whole ml you can s- drop it on the breast and it slides right in there are several companies now that make that they've been popular in canada for a very long time uh, my understanding is that the most common vitamin d in canada is called d drop d d r o p and it comes in various it's like one drop per 1000 or one drop per five one drop is 5,000 units or one drop is 400 units, depending on the concentration you get. And we need to learn from the Canadians who've probably been using vitamin D a lot longer since it's fairly dark up there. So um, I will move on to my second abstract, which is along the same line of the ab- of the first abstract that I presented, uh, which is dealing with psychiatric meds in breastfeeding women. Uh, and in this case, dealing with anti-anxiety medications, hypnotics, antipsychotics, and sedatives. The authors of this abstract are Philomena Fortinguera and Maurizio Bonatti from the Laboratory for Mother and Infant Health in the Public Health Department in Milan, Italy. These meds, I have to admit, as a family doctor, are kind of scary ones to give nursing moms because they seem we 
they're just they they create so many more side effects for individuals as compared to the the antidepressant SSRIs. And so any physician I'm sure would be a little bit leery because of the possible side effects for the baby. The authors mentioned that one to two percent of nursing moms will experience postpartum psychosis, necessitating the use of some of these medications. But I would also add that postpartum depression oftentimes is very much characterized by anxiety. And I find that when I'm treating postpartum depression, the first symptoms that women feel have to go is that sense of anxiety. And so oftentimes I feel like I need to give something short-term that would be anti-anxiety as well and also help with their insomnia. So this abstract is a literature search, uh, basically looking at studies that have been done on these various types of medications during lactation. And the bottom line here is that there are not a lot of studies in this in this area. In terms of the antipsychotics, the authors found 58 studies involving only 146 mother-infant pairs total. The most commonly studied medications were sulpiride, which is a brand name, Dolmatil, which we don't have in the United States. Also, lithium, olanzapine, which is Iprexa, haloperidol, which is Haldol, and chlorpromazine, also known as um, Thorazine. Seven percent of the infants were reported in these studies to have side effects such as lethargy and delayed psychomotor development. In terms of anti-anxiety medications, there were 24 studies regarding only about half of the anti-anxiety medications that are currently used, and there were a total of 58 infants studied, which is so small. About 17% of these infants had adverse side effects such as irritability, high-pitched crying, agitation, nausea, sedation, and poor feeding. And then in terms of the the sedatives and hypnotics, there were 12 articles regarding 8 of the 13 sedatives and hypnotics typically used, and 61 mother baby pairs were studied. Only 1 in 6 newborns had I'm sorry, I should say one in six newborns had sedation and poor feeding associated with these medications. So the bottom line is that there's very little information on these three classes of medication. And in fact, close to half of the medicines in these categories have not even been studied. The authors suggest that if meds are to be used in these categories, the following medications are the least problematic. Um, One would be olanzapine, which is Iprexa chlorpromazine, which is thorazine, as the antipsychotics. In terms of short-acting benzodiazepines for anxiety, they suggest Cirax or oxazepam, which is the same thing, or um, pinazepam. Pinazepam is not in the United States, and it looks like there are brand names called Domar and Duna. For sedation, the authors recommend lormetazepam, that and this, again, is not available in the United States. Um, it has brand names like Ergocolm and Loramet. And the authors mentioned that babies metabolize these medications more slowly so they can accumulate in the infant. So moms should really try to take minimal doses that provide relief from their symptoms. And I would just like to state that even though the authors suggest these these particular medications in these categories, as physicians, I don't want because you and I are physicians, I don't want our audience to think that these are what we're recommending as well. It's really going to be best that mom talk to her doctor about what's best for her and really watch the infant. But it's just 
so depressing that we don't have more data on these medications that are used fairly often. Yeah, it's really difficult to get um, to get any information for moms when I'm looking and, you know, the available stuff. It'll just be like one case report or very, very limited. Yeah. I had, um, when, when Dr. Chester Berlin spoke at the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine Conference, he was the Founders Lecture speaker. Mm-hmm. And he is um, one of the, uh, he's on the committee for LACMED through the National Library of Medicine in the United States that reviews medications on Toxnet. And I asked him about a registry for women because even though there, even though there's data on Toxnet, there are so many women in the United States that are taking these medications. And if we could just organize some sort of registry for women who are taking these meds and get their samples sent in and have that be nationally funded, we would have so much more information because what we're doing right now is basically we're just shotgunning it. We don't, we don't even know what, what, you know, anything about what's happening. I agree completely. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was great talking to you. I hope that um, (laughs) you're enjoying your emerging spring. My emerging spring out here is buried in like three feet of snow still. Oh, we're not going to have our crocuses next week for spring, unfortunately. Uh, sorry, I won't tell you about our 80 degree weekends then. Oh, that sounds great. All right, well, <laughs> I will talk to you in a couple weeks. All righty, bye, Anne. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med dot org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.